And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. All over this country, there are stories, inspiring stories of people who fought through uh, heart heartaches and adversity uh, to make something of their lives and to help make other people's lives uh, better. Uh, no one exemplifies that more than my friend Deval Patrick, who grew up on the south side of Chicago in difficult circumstances and went on to become the first African-American governor of Massachusetts and one of the most impactful governors of that state. Caught up with him at the Democratic National Convention last week and uh, had a great conversation. Deval Patrick, everybody knows you as the uh, former governor of Massachusetts, but um, I know you not just as a client and friend, but as a uh, a re- really a Chicagoan. That's what we we claim you. Good. Uh, but Proud of that. You, uh, but you came a long way from where you started to mm. where you are. Mm. Talk, talk about where you started. So, David, as you know, um, I I grew up on uh, the south side at Fifty Fourth and Wabash. Was born in uh, my grandparents' two bedroom tenement and lived. Uh, all my years, or most of my years, until the age of 14 there uh, with them, and my uh, my mother and sister and various relatives who came and went. You've heard me, heard me tell a story about sharing one of those bedrooms in a set of... Yeah, tell that story. Yeah, my, so my mother and sister and I shared one of the bedrooms in a set of bunk beds, and uh, we'd rotate from the top bunk to the bottom bunk to the floor every third night on the, on the floor. These were, you know, 50s, 60s on the... On the south side, a lot of things we didn't have, but a very strong sense of community uh, where, uh, you know, every every child was under the jurisdiction of every single adult on the block. And, uh, you know, I remember I used during the campaign the first time, as you may remember, um, back in uh, 2006 in Massachusetts, I would talk about how what a what a community meant to me um, from that experience and how. Uh, you know, if you messed up in front of Ms. Jones's stoop, she'd go upside your head as if you were hers and then call home. So you got it two times. And I think everybody thought that um, Ms. Jones was a kind of a composite uh, yes. figure. And I remember going out with uh, uh, one of my longest-serving uh, 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 volunteers and then paid staff, and we were trying to film something at the uh, on the stoop or in front of the uh, house where I was uh, – a tenement where I was born, and who should come walking up but Miss Jones? And he said, "I can't believe she's real." I said, "Oh yeah, she's very real." You, uh, your dad had notoriety, celebrity on his own, but he he wasn't really a big part of your life. That's right. That's right. My dad was uh, um, one of the founding members of the Sun Ra Orchestra, um, very uh, uh, popular avant garde jazz. Uh, uh, band that started in in Chicago in the fifties, and uh, ultimately moved to New York, and he moved with the band. Um, so my parents split up when I was when I was four, and I didn't know or fully appreciate. I knew my father was a jazz musician, but I didn't fully appreciate uh, the extent of his um, virtuosity, frankly, um, and uh, and 
and celebrity within the within jazz circles until I was a grown up. Um, and frankly, we didn't have much of a relationship until I, I met and married my wife Diane, who uh, brought my father back into our family, and I'm glad she did. Do you? Uh, but that must have been painful when you were a kid. I remember, uh, maybe perhaps you wrote about it, and, but when your dad uh, left the family, you following him into the hallway. Yeah, yeah. Actually, it was up onto the sidewalk. So I was four. And what I remember is that my parents had a just a loud, rough argument, and my father storming out um, uh, on what turned out to be his uh, his last time leaving the the house. And I, I, my mother, you know, slumped in a chair back in the basement apartment at that time we were living in, and I went up the stairs and chased him down the uh, down the block, and he kept saying, "Go home, go home, go home." And finally, uh, in his own frustration and anger, turned and uh, pushed or hit me, and I ended up, you know, flat on the sidewalk uh, with my uh, palms burned by the concrete. We've all had that experience, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and looking up at him and watching his back as he as he disappeared, and I didn't see him for years after that. So a long time to repair that um, uh, relationship, and I'm not sure we ever got to a place where. Uh, it was a father-son relationship as much as a relationship among uh, uh, respectful adults. And I'm glad he knew and was as fond of Diane, my wife, as he was, and, and that he knew our children yeah. and they him. Yeah. No, that's – yeah, my dad died young, so never got to know my wife, never got to know my kids. It's mm-hmm. a big – it's a big hole yeah. there. Well, he'd be proud of you, I'm sure. Well, thank you. But – uh and and what 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 was growing up uh, aside from the sort of the fact that there was this sense of community you were in the public schools there I was and I you know can I just say thank you for asking about that because I I've you know one of the phenomenons of public life is that you're you're introduced a lot and people give your your history and they often in my case talk as if my life began at Milton Academy through this marvelous opportunity I had through a program called A Better Chance to leave the south side of Chicago and go to boarding school in Massachusetts. And I was 14 when I went. And yes, it was transformative. And yes, I met incredible people and had extraordinary um, teachers and they exposed me to a world uh, and a sense of uh, a range of possibilities that I hadn't been exposed to before. But it doesn't do honor to the adults, many of them teachers, who were so critical to to me and teaching me how to look up rather than down back on the south side of Chicago. And many of those adults were were teachers, you know, big, broken, under-resourced, underfunded, sometimes violent uh, public schools. But um, there were marvelous um, teachers who brought um, their professionalism and their love into the classroom. And I remember in particular a sixth grade teacher, Mrs. Quaintance, um, and there might have been, I don't know, 30, 35 of us in this classroom. This is a school called then called the Terrell School, which was built as a part of the Robert Taylor Homes. Um, uh, Big housing project. Huge. And you lived right near there. I lived a half a block away on Wabash Avenue. Yeah. And uh, uh, and I went to school there from uh, from first grade through sixth. And uh, you know, 
there was an awful lot of just maintaining order in these uh, in these classes in a lot of the classrooms, but not in Mrs. Quain's classroom. It was she was she could she could get, get order in that classroom just by the look in her <laughs> yes. in her eye. Yeah. In fact, she had a paddle. I don't I don't even think this is allowed these days. But right. she had a paddle in the classroom, which had written on it "Board of Education." <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, it funny. was something that she just had around as a but never had that, never had to deploy. I don't think uh, I think rarely anyhow uh-huh. had to had to deploy. But you know, this is a teacher who taught us to um, right. So we're all kind of a mess. You know, we're from homes just like mine. Most of us at or near uh, or, or below the poverty level. Parents struggling if there are um, uh, parents in the in the household. A lot of people just sort of living from paycheck to paycheck and trying to make a way in uh, in what was then, as I say, the fifties and sixties and segregated um, Southside Chicago. She taught us to count and uh, and say the greetings in German. She took us to um, the first opera I'd ever seen um, as a class trip. I had no idea what they were singing about. I still don't know what they were singing about, but it was it was magical. Uh, she took us to a, a a new movie that was out at the time called The Sound of Music, and she used it to to teach us about um, the rise of the Nazis and uh, and modern European history. She was the first person, really, um, to to help us imagine what it might be like to be citizens of the world. And you know, for any kid, I think that's huge. But for a kid. Um, who's, uh, you know, kids like us, it was um, a profound gift. And I I stayed close to Mrs. Quaintance. Um, uh, you know, she came to my graduation from Milton Academy. She came to my college graduation. She came to my law school graduation. Really? She was present when I was sworn in as head of the Civil Rights Division in the Clinton administration. She was present at our wedding. She would have come to uh, my inauguration if she'd been alive. My third grade teacher came. Um, to uh, to my inauguration, but you know those uh, those teachers were incredible. Uh, they and the old ladies in in church um, took a real interest in and 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 a, really taught us to understand the stake that we had in in our own and our in our neighbors' dreams and struggles. I was just having this a uh, similar conversation with someone uh, the other day about uh, PS forty in New York. Uh, I guess it was Paul Simon, uh, because uh, I did a podcast with him the other day, mm-hmm. and we were talking about the New York public schools, mm-hmm. and I talked about this teacher, Mrs. Roth, who I had for two years when in first and third grade, and I skipped second grade, and who you know introduced us to Martin Luther King and brought mm-hmm. John Chiardi and Ogden Nash, these poets, to the yeah. classroom, took us to meet Leontine Price. Wow. And, uh, you know, New York City public school teacher probably impacted on so many lives, you know. I think that these acts of um, sort of off-syllabus education happen in the public schools much, much more often than we credit them. Uh, and they happen even today. I, I, you know, I, I, it's one of the reasons why I, I honor teachers um, yeah. wherever and whenever I can. We, uh, but, but the... F- but one of your teachers, I guess, was it in the eighth grade? But one of your teachers, you mentioned this program that uh, that took you out of the South Side of right. Chicago. The a Better Milton. Chance program. Yeah. yeah. What was that? So the, a Better Chance was a program, is a program 
that in the euphemism of that time, uh, got kids from non-traditional prep school backgrounds um, and uh, exposed them to independent schools. And mine was pretty non-traditional. Um, we had three choices in those days, David. When you graduated from eighth grade, you could go to uh, the general high school in your school district. Um, in, in my case, that was DuSable High School, which mm-hmm. is actually where we had our, our uh, um, junior high classes. And at that time, you know, this is right after the 68 and 69 riots. We, there was no glass left in any of the windows. It was either boarded up or, po- uh, or polyglass. We had police at every intersection in the corridor and chains on the doors between the buildings. So between, um, uh, between uh, uh, periods, you couldn't have the gangs coming in or, or you know, um, kids going out and what have you. It was chaotic. Um, you could also go to a... Uh, technical high school. There were two in the city, one on the south side, one on the north side. The one on the north side was um, well-appointed, modern. The one on the south side at that time was a bit of a mess. I wanted to be an architect um, at the time. I still want to be an architect, actually. And they taught uh, mechanical drawing at technical school. So I thought, all right, let's do that. And uh, my guidance counselor worked really hard to try to persuade the north side school to uh, to take me but they wouldn't take any south side students at the time i think they've since been sued over that but and uh and then the and third- we should explain just for those who don't get it that uh the south side you're talking about largely black right and right. the north side largely white correct and then there was uh there were um uh there were vocational schools, and there were a number around the city. They taught things I now wish I knew, you know, like auto mechanics and stuff like that. But they weren't college preparatory, and although no one in my family had gone to college, that was an ambition I had um, that no one in the family, in my family, discouraged, and that my teachers encouraged. So that how, you, how did you? Right. What, why did you have that ambition? I mean, what, what, what inculcated you with that? Um, again, those teachers who, um, who very much believe that education was the way to lift yourself and your and your family. We were living in a time when uh, uh, public leaders and many others talked about um, trying to remedy uh, the uh, uh, effect of uh, historic segregation um, uh, in northern cities as well as in the south, and that education was uh, a big part of that uh, a big part of that formula. And I, you know, I was exposed to um, uh, to professionals, black professionals, who were college educated. Those teachers. I had a music teacher who was um, um, uh, a part time timpanist with the uh, Chicago Symphony, and an architect um, who was the person who got me excited about being an architect and explained what the path was to becoming uh, to becoming that. So you know, we were we were poor, um, or as my my. Uh, my grandmother would always say we were broke, not poor, because broke was temporary and poor is permanent. Um, but we had kind of classic middle-class values in our house, the same kind of aspirations, the same uh, emphasis on decorum and, uh, and behavior and, uh, uh, and, uh, um, and you know, going to college, although no one in my family, as I said, had gone, was a part of that. You... Uh and so a teacher recommended you for this program. Yes. A, uh, in the eighth grade, 
a seventh grade teacher I had had, English teacher, uh, knew about the A Better Chance um, program or learned about it. And by the way, David, I should tell you, I learned a few years ago that she had only just learned about the A Better Chance um, program and she had recommended, she didn't know anything about it other than the flyer she pulled off of a bulletin board and I'm the only person she's ever recommended. Huh. Um, but she introduced the uh, program to my mother and me and, uh, you know, not really fully appreciating what it was she was talking about. We applied and I got in, uh, an invitation to come to Milton Academy in the Which in is the like as far from the south side of Chicago as one could imagine. Like landing on a different planet, right? Yeah. You, yeah, you, uh, you tell that story about the dress requirements yeah. when you arrived there that really kind of summarizes how much of a sea change it was well in those days so that i went in 1970 i was 14 um they had a dress code and the boys were expected to wear dre- uh, jackets and ties to class so my grandparents um uh, splurged on a new jacket for me to take to to school but a jacket for us was a windbreaker so uh, that I, you know, I show up the night before classes began cold by myself, um, and uh, the next morning all the kids are putting on their blue blazers and their tweed coats, and I thought, oh boy, <laughs> I had my windbreaker, I had a lot to learn. But, you know, I figured it out. Yeah, that's a that's a tough adjustment, though. How were you? How were you received? You know, at the time, um, and probably like any. 14-year-old, you think the only, uh, the only one who's afraid and uneasy is you. Um, I didn't fully appreciate until many years uh, later that even the legacy kids, you know, the kids whose families' names were on the buildings we were going to school in were just as scared, just, uh, just as worried about being accepted and so on. I mean, the, 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 the difference is, of course, that they understood the code Right, uh, the unspoken language, the uh, uh, you know the things you have to learn when you go into a foreign, a truly foreign uh, setting. Uh, so they had some um, more than passing acquaintance with uh, with how things worked, and I didn't. Um, I, I had I was I was very fortunate. I had um, a couple of kids who were who. Uh, um, were interested in being my friend, even though I didn't speak the language, and I think I. I came to realize they they felt just as out of place as I did, although they were of that set, if you will. And I had a couple of teachers, including one in particular, an English teacher in the ninth grade named A.O. Smith, who um, really, just right out of a a dictionary for preppy English teacher, you know, with the tweed coat and the worn shirts and and the trust fund. Mm -hmm. Uh, But... um, really went out of his way to uh, interpret the experience for me and to, uh, and to make me feel a part of the Milton Academy family and his own personal um, family. And those things go a long way. You ever think about, um, you must have, what if that teacher hadn't taken that flyer off of the bulletin board? Yeah. What would your li- how different would your life be? I don't know. And I, I have you, thought about that. I mean, it may be that you would have found your way... Through some other vehicle, you know, I'd like to, I'd like to, I'd like to think that I do believe that at at some level. I, I I'm also very clear that Milton Academy was uh, 
an extraordinary advantage for me and that there were many, many young people as imaginative and ambitious and creative uh, and bright um, who were friends of mine back on the south side of Chicago who did not get that, uh, that opportunity. Um, they, some of them found other opportunities, um, other ways to, uh, um, to move forward, but, but some of them didn't. You know, I think about the south side of Chicago today in your old neighborhood. Yeah. And, um, and I think it's harder now because uh, the the prevalence of vi- of gun violence, yes. gangs of which were there then are now even more prevalent now. Drugs, yes, uh, and um, you know the, the 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 odds for these kids are so long in many ways. Yes, to, and I always thought, you know, these uh, pre- President Obama when he was a state senator used to say. I, I go into the first grade classrooms and these kids are filled with dreams and there's a light in their eye. And by the time they get to eighth grade, uh, you know, I go into those classrooms and it's gone. Yeah. That, that spark is gone. You know, David, I, I, I see that. I saw that. Um, I've seen that in my public and private life. Um, uh, and I'd say you don't have to wait for the eighth grade to see uh, that spark start to flicker if not go, if not go out. I will say that when I was growing up, um, there were there were gangs. Um, the Blackstone Ranger, Rangers yeah. and the uh, and the Disciples were organizing, and that's actually one of the reasons why my mother went out of her way to try to find um, uh, summer opportunities for us to uh, my sister and me to get off the streets and go um, someplace else. The gangs weren't as well armed, and in some respects, weren't as um, uh, well organized. But there were gangs. Um, there were drugs. Uh, my uncle, who was uh, himself addicted to heroin, was living with us uh, for uh, uh, some of that, uh, some of my time on the South Side with all of the calamity that trails um, a person who's, uh, who's uh, dealing with, uh, uh, with addiction. I will say at a time when we paid more attention to addiction as, a, as an illness rather than a crime, when we went through that cycle and seemed to be cycling back. Um, to uh, to a better place in that respect um, now, but one big difference today, I think, is that our our expectations are different. Our expectations, uh, the expectations that adults uh, have of children in uh, uh, communities like the South Side of Chicago, that teachers have of children, that public leaders have of of children, and express um, beyond the platitudes, and frankly, the practical programs that paid attention. Um, to uh, uh, to the fact that there were some legacy challenges um, that uh, 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 poor people faced that we as a as a uh, uh, as a collective common um, had some responsibility to pay attention to and I've worried about that for many years. Going to take a short break and we'll be back with Deval Patrick. You. After Milton, you went to Harvard. I did. And um, uh, that probably wasn't as big a leap after Milton mm. because you, that, you probably learned the language and the code by then. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I felt more um, like I had less distance to travel, I guess, to, to, uh, to understand me both, both physically and, uh, and emotionally or intellectually. Uh, to understand that environment, although 
you know, I remember, and I and David, you know, I've told you so many of these stories over the years. Yeah, but but, no, uh, but there I, are but nobody else, yet, or a few others have heard some of them. So I, I remember, um, you know, of course, as I said, no one in my family had gone to college, so no one was able at home to sort of help me. Yes, think about it, apply for it, you know, visit school. They didn't understand that whole um, process, but we had at Milton Academy a whole apparatus around that, including. College uh, recruiters who came to campus to interview us, right? They came to us. We didn't have to go anywhere. And uh, I p- applied to five schools. That's just Philadelphia noise here. People trying to get from place to place in the city of brotherly love and, <laughs> and sisterly affection. I just assumed you were going to edit all that out, so I was waiting. <laughs> but anyway, I applied to five schools, and I remember I got in. I got into all five, but I got the got the letter um, for the school I really wanted to go to. And I called home and I got my grandmother on the phone and I said, Graham, I'm going to college next year. I'm going to Harvard. And she carried on, David. She was loud and yelling and screaming and calling everybody in the in the apartment to come by the phone. And then she paused and she said, now where is that anyway? <laughs> and I, I remember at that moment being devastated. You know, how could you not appreciate this incredible accomplishment and the selectivity of this Ivy League school and all that stuff. And it was years before I realized that what she was excited about was the essence of it all. Right? Yeah. It was, she was excited yeah. about the opportunity, not the prestige, yeah. the opportunity. Which is a be- beautiful, really. It's an enormously important lesson. Yeah. Um, and uh, But it took some perspective for me to appreciate that lesson. Yeah. Uh, you went to Harvard Law School as well. What Not ha- right away. What did you do in between? I lived in Darfur for most of the year between uh, college and, and law school. And I, it's funny, I don't, I, don't, I don't get to talk much about uh, that. It was the first uh, opportunity I'd had to live outside the United States. I had something called a, uh, a Rockefeller Fellowship whose requirement was simply that you spend a year in a distinctly non-Western culture. And uh, I wanted what, to what go— a great idea. Uh, yeah, fantastic. If you remember, Michael Rockefeller was the son of Nelson who was lost in yes, New Guinea. And yes. this was uh, something that his family had set up in his honor and in his spirit, it turns out. Yes. Um, I wrote to every—I wanted to go to Africa. Um, why? Because, you know, it was the 70s and I was a black man and <laughs> Roots had been on TV not too long before. And I I, uh, I just wanted to experience it. And I—, I um, and I say it in the same naive way I thought about it at that time, as if it was a place instead of a continent and huge with extraordinary diversity and variety. And I wrote to everybody, David, who knew somebody in Africa, and I got one reply from one guy, Sudanese guy, on a UN project in Khartoum. And he said, I'm not sure what you'll do, but come and we'll figure it out. And uh, so I planned and planned, and I bought a backpack, and I packed and repacked that backpack with a year's worth of stuff, um, uh, traveled. Now, now, the windbreaker probably was more appropriate to this than it's funny you Milton say, Academy, Isn't huh? it funny you say that? Because I had a blue blazer rolled up in that <laughs> backpack um, when I started out. I lost it eventually, got rid of it eventually. But um, uh, I, got to, um, I got to Athens, I remember, and then I... I taught myself the the numbers and the greetings 
in Arabic on the flight from Athens to Cairo. I arrived in Cairo in the middle of the night by myself. Um, Chaotic place and city, but a really good time to be an American in that part of the world. In fact, Sadat came home from Camp David while I was in Cairo. So a lot of enthusiasm about the United States uh, and about Americans. Then I hitchhiked from uh, Cairo to Khartoum, which took about two and a half weeks, you know, on every kind of vehicle and and uh, and vessel, um, and finally arrived the last week through the Nubian desert without a bath and uh, in a Khartoum. Found the office of the guy I had been uh, writing to for months, and learned when I got there that he had left the week before for two years in Long Beach, California. Oh my! Had said nothing to his office about my coming or what I was supposed to do, and 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 the American who was the uh, UN project lead basically told me to get lost you know we don't you can't just show up and uh and drop in here with no skills and expect to help and uh you know there was no um you know the internet hadn't been invented there weren't cell phones there was no way to connect with home and explain what it what had happened i you know i just i eventually talked my way onto the project and to get rid of me he sent me out to darfur out in the Westernmost part of the uh, country, which was um, not as desperate a place, it was poor and far away, but not violent in those days. Um, you took five days on the top of a market truck through on tracks through the sand to get out there, and uh, and that's where I was. Right, no mail, no phone service, um, no uh, public transportation. Um, six months, I think it was, without any contact with my family, and I figured it out. Right. I learned the language, I, I learned how to do the job, I learned how to make friends, I learned how to live and eat and so on. And I think for me, learning that you could be dropped in the middle of um, nothing familiar and, uh, and figure it out, not just the practical stuff, but actually the emotional uh, stuff is an enormously powerful life lesson yeah. uh, and has explained a lot of the choices I've made since. So then you came back and, and decided to go to law school. Yeah, I had, I brought one application to one law school with me uh, when I when I went out, and while I was waiting to talk myself onto that project, I decided I would pull it out and fill it out. Um, so I spread out on the sand in the back of this place I was uh, living in the application forms for Harvard Law School, and I um, uh, filled it out in hand. Um, you know, I think it had squashed bugs on it and stuff like that. <laughs> um, they didn't I, hold that against you. Apparently no. not, because I, I gave it to somebody who knew somebody who was going to London, and I left for Darfur. And when I came back, there was a telegram saying I was in. So pretty mm. nice. Yeah. And why did you want to go to law school? What happened to engineering? Um, so, uh, I'm, like I said, I was still interested in architecture. Um, oh, and I'm I, sorry, architecture, yeah, yeah. not engineering. No worries. Um, yeah. But uh, I had met a... Uh, uh, a bunch of lawyers um, led by uh, Jim Vorenberg, who was our housemaster at, uh, at Harvard and um, was himself um, very active in civil rights and um, had also been at Ropes and Gray, a venerable corporate firm in Boston, and seemed to have a versatile professional life. And I, I loved that model. 
and uh, and he encouraged me to think about uh, law school. Um, and in fact, I sent my application to him and asked him to uh, um, to file it. And it was he. It was his telegram that was waiting for me when I got back to Khartoum. And um, you saw this as a vehicle to fight for civil rights. Is that was the law? Was that the principle? Attraction. I saw it as a social justice training ground, mm-hmm. you know, um, and I, I will admit, you know, at the time, there were an awful lot of people who went to law school, um, you know, it was described as the great sloth bin of the undecided. <laughs> um, I, it wasn't that I was undecided, but it seemed like the way to um, to learn a habit of mind without having to choose a particular field just yet. And the business of learning relevance um, of, of being succinct in language, having been an English uh, major, I cared a lot about. And fundamentally, um, being able to talk about and read about issues of fundamental justice. And what does that, what does that really mean? And how does that work in a, uh, in a liberal democracy um, and in places where democracy has not taken hold? Um, what does that mean in the breasts of men and women? And what does it mean... Um, in uh, in dusty law books, and I got a lot of that at uh, at Harvard Law School. Not all of it from the classes; some of it from um, my fellow classmates and schoolmates. One of whom, by the way, was nominated for vice president this week. Tim Kaine. Yeah, which is pretty exciting. You did you know him back then? Oh yeah, yeah, we all did. I mean, Tim was beloved. He's probably <laughs> he's probably the last person any of us would have imagined would go into politics. Why? Um, he was so earnest and kind in a very um, just wide open way just yeah. no no guile by the way he's still that way yeah um, uh, deeply uh, deeply faithful um, mm-hmm. as a as a Catholic um, he left law school before the rest of us and took some time off and volunteered in Latin America he spoke um, uh, and I think volunteer with missionaries in Latin yeah, America. Yeah, right, um, in uh, Honduras. Yes, um, spoke Spanish um, fluently. He he was a very um, kind of outward-facing person and um, uh, by by disposition and also by behavior in a place that was full of careerists, really brilliant, fabulous, um, uh, caring uh, careerists, but still people who were thinking about uh, – their uh, their careers and he was just thinking as he said very beautifully the other day at the convention just how to do as much good as possible and he he became a civil rights lawyer he did he did we were all practicing civil rights at about the same time um, because after after law school and a clerkship on the on the uh, court of appeals in California I joined the NAACP Legal Defense Fund yeah yeah and what and tell me about that choice. Because, you know, you come out of Harvard Law, yeah. and I, I always, this was something that always struck me about the president, because I, when I met him, he had just returned from Harvard Law. Mm-hmm. He had been president, president of the Law Review. Mm-hmm. I, I could only imagine the opportunities that he was offered mm-hmm. uh, at corporations and law firms, mm-hmm. and he came back to run a voter registration drive and to right. join a small civil rights uh, practice. Right. Right. So when I left law school, the only plan I had was to join, uh, was the clerk for this judge on uh, on the Ninth Circuit, Steve Reinhardt, a marvelous, uh, really liberal lion um, and brilliant. 
and then to join a law firm in San Francisco where I'd spent part of the, part of the summer. And it was a corporate law firm, big corporate uh, law firm with a very deep pro bono tradition uh, in the litigation department, which was interesting to me. Judge Reinhardt um, was uh, openly contemptuous of the decision to join the, uh, 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 the law firm, you know, tolerant of it, but pushed us and all of his clerks to think about um, uh, our service to the greater good and how we uh, should do that and build that into our career choices. And then I met the woman who's now my wife um, uh, while we were in L.A. She was practicing in a law firm there. Her firm opened an office in New York where she'd grown up. Um, she wanted to go be a part of, uh, of that. Um, and uh, so at the end of that year, I said, no, thank you, after all, to that law firm. And we moved to New York, and I uh, didn't have a job. And I was back in touch with Jim Vornberg. Uh, at Harvard Law School, who said, well, where you belong and have always belonged is the Legal Defense Fund. Which has a storied tradition. I mean, Thurgood Marshall uh, used it as a platform to win these wonderful landmark victories, including uh, Brown versus Board of Education. That's right. And alongside him, uh, in that case, uh, and then to the time I was there, was Jack Greenberg. And Jack Greenberg, at, uh, in 19, this is 1983, was the head of the Legal Defense Fund, and I was the last person he hired before he retired. And um, later you would head the Civil Rights Division in the Justice Department. Yes. Uh, I, I just want to take a little bit of a – I want to talk about your governor's race. I want to talk about your relationship with Barack Obama. Hmm. But I, let's just stop right here because this is an interesting time, you know, a challenging time. Uh, in this whole, in the area of civil rights and social justice, mm-hmm. uh, this this issue of um, the relationship between police and community. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'll tell you, my my concern is that I see this thing spiraling. Mm. That you you know we have the, in certain neighborhoods of Chicago, for example, you know ninety nine percent of the Carnage is inflicted not by police but by gang members, yes. drug dealers, and yes. so on. Uh, tragic, tragic losses of life. Um, these communities desperately need policing. Yes. These police go in there though, and it's a bit. Of, it's like a war zone for them, and yes. they act that way in mm-hmm. some cases. Mm-hmm. And you know, so how do we get to the place where police and communities? are working in concert, people are treated with dignity, yeah. and there's some security restored as well so mm-hmm. that kids can play on blocks like you played on as a kid without, with relative, you know, without the, the reality of gunfire all around them. Well, David, for, uh, for reasons, some of which you alluded to in your, in your question, there's not a simple answer. Um, there are, That's why I'm asking you. I'm yeah. not smart enough to figure well, it out. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure I have uh, the answer. I can tell you some of the things that we worked on when I was in the Civil Rights Division and some of the things we worked on recently in Chicago. Um, when yes, I was you've been helpful to the, in terms uh, of uh, advising that effort yes. after the, some of the really egregious police shootings. Well, the McDonald, the right. McDonald uh, shooting in particular, which was captured on video and, you know, it's interesting because in the, um, uh, I think it, it was 16, 17 times that young man was uh, 16 was times, yeah. After, uh, after he was already down and um, 
and uh, and according to the video, anyhow, uh, posed no evident threat. Right to the uh, police was not, and there were a and, bunch of other policemen there who didn't shoot. Right, um, and no one, as far as we can tell from the video, who said stop shooting. Right. It's interesting that we met people in the course of some of the um, public hearings from the south side and the west side um, who made comments to the effect that it took a video to persuade the people downtown that the folks on the south and west side had been telling the truth all along. And all along, this goes back a long way, you know, the first story I ever wrote when I was a young reporter at the Hyde Park Herald newspaper was about someone you'll remember, Congressman Ralph Metcalf. Yes. And his battles with Mayor Richard J. Daley over police conduct in the African-American community and the charges of brutality and abuse of authority. This was 43 years ago. Yes, yes. No, I I remember that. Um, Look, the president in many... Uh, in the course of t- uh, brilliantly teaching us many lessons in his uh, um, in his address to the convention last night, talked about how important it is to 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 see both the anguish and anxiety that a mother of black boys feels when she sends her boys out into the neighborhood, um, fearing for their safety. And the anguish and anxiety that the family of a police officer feels when they send that police officer off to do his or her job. And how much in common those feelings are. Um, It's, uh, you know, I don't think anybody has ever believed that um, the the job of police officers is easy, um, isn't fraught with danger, isn't made more so because of the proliferation of guns. Um, and ever more powerful guns and ever more powerful um, ammunition. Can you imagine a bullet called a cop killer bullet? Yeah. Um, but at the and, and, and at the same time, we expect and train um, restraint because that's what the rule of law means. It really does mean that you don't get to have to be judge and jury and executioner out on the street, um, and it's tough. I think one of the reasons why it, this is as tough as it is is because we have moved away from community policing, which is a tried and true strategy, though an expensive one, and it requires police officers out of their cars and walking uh, and meeting uh, uh, and getting to know members of community. Um, you know, most professional law enforcement will tell you that. Uh, Crime solving depends on members of the community coming forward with information. And if you don't have a relationship of trust um, with them, it's very, very hard to solve crime. Yeah, well, I, you know, I'm struck by the police departments have codes of silence. That's what we saw in Chicago, that the, the police officers in the McDonald case did not come forward and did not uh, uh, expose what had happened. Well, there. listen, you know, we and we hold it. it, it it is also true that gangs have codes Well, that's of my point, because and a few weeks before that, and you may have seen this story, there was a young kid, nine years old, yeah. lured away from a playground uh, by gang members who then took him into an alley, the, the, the kid holding his basketball, and shot him in the head as retribution because his father was in a rival gang. 
and no one for weeks would come forward. Uh, these codes of silence exist yeah. on both sides, yeah. and it, it reflects lack of. It reflects in in, in in some cases fear, in other cases lack of trust. Yes, I got to take. This is a bad, inopportune time to say this, but I have to take another short break. You say no easy answers to this police issue. Um, we we so sorely need. The president always talks about seeing ourselves in each other, mm-hmm. and I think that image of we all care about our families. We all hope to come home at night. Mm-hmm. That's true of the young kid walking on these Vigilant. crime-ridden streets, and the mothers who sit by their windows. Uh, hoping that they'll see the kid well, come and home, it, and it's true of the police officers, it's, and it's true of the of the mothers who hope that their husbands who are coming home from work, you know, don't get stopped and have the thing escalate. Yes. Um, so you know that the the problem that we must deal with, you know, part of what is so challenging about these uh, conversations when we talk about the code of silence. Um, among the gangs and the code of silence among the police um, is that in a in a society based on the rule of of law, the expectations are different of those different groups. The expectations of uh, of official behavior are higher. You 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 don't get to act uh, or or be unaccountable um, in an official uh, uh, capacity. Um, so it's it's we can't. It's not like the one lets the other off the hook. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? Yes. Um, And it's hard in these times um, to talk about that um, because it sounds to some that you are dishonoring um, uh, the role of of law enforcement um, and being unrealistic about how hard the job is. I certainly am not. Um, I respect it. Um, I honor it. Uh, we need it. And by the way, um, you could argue, and many uh, rightly do, that the folks in neighborhoods like the South Side of Chicago need it even 100%. more. 100%. But for it to work and really be effective, there are some things that feel to some counterintuitive, which is that, you know, um, law enforcement are going to have to, um, as I say, get out of their cruisers and start to build relationships with members of the of the community, relationships of, of trust, and that won't happen instantly. And it's made more difficult when um, when the errant police officer steps over the line. Um, uh, but uh, but it has to happen. I, I I could talk about this issue alone for an hour, and we and we have a limited amount of time. Uh, so I want to talk to you about back to your own life. Um, and uh, you you ran you ran for governor, and everybody thought you were crazy to do it. Uh, <laughs> I think you did too. <laughs> uh, well, I don't know. I showed up, didn't I? You did. God bless you. Uh, but uh, the uh, not only had there never been an African American governor of Massachusetts, not only is the minority population small there, but you are ne- you had never run for public office before. Mm-hmm. Massachusetts has a very clubby political environment. Uh, what possessed you? to think that yeah. you could do it? Well, um, first of all, I think um, we've seen, uh, you know, I'd spend most of my life, as you know, in the, in the private sector yes. and in companies. 
Yes. And one of the things I'd noticed, one bad habit um, I noticed in uh, my corporate life was this incredible emphasis on managing for the next quarter. Yeah. Getting the short-term results sometimes, I think, without full regard or due regard to the long-term interests of the enterprise. Yeah. And I think that bad habit has crept into the way we govern without ourselves question. in this country. We govern for the next election cycle. Talk about that a lot. The next yeah. news cycle. Yeah. We don't govern for the next generation. Um, and I wanted to see whether it was possible um, anymore to govern for the next generation. And that means, I think, and relates very much to a second reason, which is, you know, the notion of, uh, of running or governing willing to lose, that uh, the big, hard questions that have to be faced um, uh, sometimes jeopardize whether you get to keep the job. Um, you know, and I, I wanted, I think I had an advantage, to tell you the truth, that I could, because politics hadn't been my career, that I could do the job without thinking about my career. Um, and I also believed that there were other citizens like me, and David, you and I have talked about this a lot, who who wanted and were in fact hungry for principle-based politics and not just opportunist, yeah. uh, uh, opportunity-based politics. And it, don't get me wrong, I, I understand that it's a, there's an art to politics, there's timing, there's tone, there's compromise, I, I, I get all that. Had I not gotten all that, I don't think we would have gotten as much done as we did. Um, it all—it isn't all about being ideologically pure, but I do think it—it it, it is about having a vision for the kind of community you're trying to build and actually taking, making your policy choices relate back to that set of values. I think we heard the president talk about that in his own unique uniquely magical way um, last night and frankly through the last not just eight years but 12 or more um, and I tried to talk about that and lead that way when I was in office and you as guys, a candidate before. You guys are friends. Yeah, I met him when I was head of the Civil Rights Division and he was practicing voting rights law in Chicago and our mutual friend Ab Mikva Yes, introduced just us. passed away, yes, a wonderful indeed. guy he, we had a, as a guest just a few months ago on this podcast that's a that would be a, a piece of history I hope, yeah hope it's properly so, so preserved absolutely yeah yeah um and what and and you consulted with <laughs> senator obama who had just won the run, run this improbable race for the senate in 2004 about running for governor that's in 2006 exactly, that's exactly right I, he was he was moving into his new office in the basement of the of one of those senate office buildings yeah and uh, and I was just leaving the Coca Cola company, and I made the decision to uh, to run. And I went to see him, and I had supported him in his uh, in his Senate race. And I, I went to see him, and he was kind enough to see me. And he was a rock star already uh, on Capitol Hill, which was a complicated phenomenon, right? In an institution that's all about rank and waiting your time, your turn, and, right. uh, and so forth. Um, and I remember there are boxes everywhere, you know, new. The furniture had just been moved in and uh, and all that. We sat on one of those, you know, standard-issue federal government leather sofas. Um, and he said, and I told him what I was interested in doing. Uh, and he said, okay, let me get this straight. He said, um, what's your name recognition at home? And I said, I don't know, 1% or 2%. He said, uh, you got an organization yet? I said, no. He said, you got any money? 
I said, no. He said, okay, I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I, there's such a kinship between not just you guys, but the campaigns that you ran. He yes. ran a grassroots campaign in 2004. You did in 2006. And I think a lot, and yours uh, was infused with some of the um, sort of technical expertise that was developed by some of the Howard Dean guys in the presidential race right. in 2004. That's right. So you did the, you were the, really one of the pioneer campaigns in combining uh, technology and shoe leather to organize people. And those were some of the things that uh, we modeled the 2008 Obama campaign. And I really see there, uh, not only in the spirit, in the commitment, the commitment to do good things, uh, regardless of, um, you know, the sort of political orthodoxies, uh, but but the, just the the spirit of those campaigns as citizen movements. Well, the, you know that the, the for us, as you will remember, David, because um, you were so helpful to us in uh, in the two thousand six uh, campaign in Massachusetts. G- grassroots organizing was both a tactic and a philosophy. It was a tactic um, because as a you know as a as a newcomer and an outsider in a very uh, a closed and inward-looking political establishment, it was a big deal or a bigger deal than uh, it might have been uh, to cut the line, you know, just come in out of nowhere and, and presume to run for uh, uh, for the job of the uh, chief executive. And uh, so the only way I was going to be able to cut that line is if um, people at the, uh, at the community level, um, you know, open that hole for me. But the second was that, um, you know, a whole lot of people in the Commonwealth, and I think it's true in the, in the country, have checked out of their political and civic life. They just, they don't, they don't engage anymore. Um, and I felt like there was something powerful and um, respectful about inviting them back into a stake of their own uh, civic and, and political Life and I know that's something the president felt um, very strongly about it yeah. as well. Well, one of them was my sister Joan, who lives in Arlington, Massachusetts, Indeed. who called me and said, "You got to work for this guy I just met, named Deval Patrick." I, th- I think we met in a room. There might have been twelve people in that room, or something like that. Well, yeah. you sure, sure cap- you, you cap- captured her. You did great things as governor on renewable energy. You did great things on education and. In uh, in really upgrading and reforming the community college system in in Massachusetts and a whole uh, range of of other things. Um, we got a lot done. Yeah, we got a lot done. We uh, when I finished, we were when our team finished, we were uh, after eight years, we were number one in America in student achievement, in healthcare coverage, in energy efficiency, in entrepreneurial activity in economic competitiveness, in veterans' affairs, much more. We, had a, we were at a 25-year employment high after coming through uh, a global economic collapse. Um, we'd achieved uh, eight years of balanced and responsible budgets and the highest bond rating in the history of the Commonwealth. We didn't get it all right, uh, but we got a lot, uh, a lot done. And I think that was about being very intentionally ambitious about our uh, uh, about our agenda being aspirational i think we are an aspirational 
commonwealth and an aspirational nation, and I think people organized around stretch goals, as they say in the business community. You surprised a lot of people after you left by going to work for Bain, yeah, uh, which was, you know, controversial in the two thousand and uh, and twelve election. It was Mitt Romney's firm. Yeah, I know <laughs> you missed that, but that was a. But uh, just just very briefly, why did you go there? And what are you doing? Yeah, there? well, I had. Uh, I had a bunch of friends at uh, uh, at Bain Capital from you know before my time uh, being there, and I had a sense of their um, values and their uh, their interests. I had a sense of their politics. Um, and well, um, I'm also a friend of mine, Steve Pagliuca. Yes, a great indeed. Guy. Steve is fantastic. Jonathan Levine. Yes, great uh, guy. Josh Beckenstein and 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 others. But those are three of the most senior people in the um, in the firm. And in, and in fact, uh, uh, Steve and Jonathan had said, when you're ready. Um, and you want to bounce ideas off of us, let us be a sounding board for you. And I was actually on my way to do something else. I'd gotten very, very interested in this idea of impact investing, which Mm -hmm. is the notion of investing uh, in companies for both financial return and uh, social or environmental impact. And uh, because I've I've been wary of false choices my whole life, and and I think um, that in some respects government and philanthropy has left has let the business community off the hook when in terms of in, in terms of facing up to the all of the consequences of uh, commercial investment and i th- and i thought then and i believe even more so today that there is a way to invest in companies and indeed to encourage uh the scaling of uh of companies that are mission driven that are about um paying attention to all of their bottom lines their social and environment environmental bottom line as well I was on my way to do something different. I went to see Jonathan and, and, uh, and Steve Pal- Jonathan Levine and Steve Paliuka. We got talking about it. And Steve leaned forward and, about that other thing. He leaned forward and said, that sounds very interesting. He said, but what are you really passionate about? And I started to talk about impact investing. And he said, I can't believe you brought that up. And I said, why? He said, because as a firm, we at Bain Capital have been trying to figure out how to get into that space for a long time. For a whole host of reasons, um, uh, internal and external. So we got together uh, a year and change ago and uh, spent the better part of a year mapping the field and developing a business plan, and we're standing up that business right now. And investing in companies who have social impact. Investing in companies that uh, where we can that are intentional about, for example, creating jobs in uh, chronically uh, in places of chronic underemployment. Or in, uh, or in companies um, whose uh, uh, thesis for being in business is around sustainability, mm-hmm. um, sustainable consumer goods or energy efficiency, alternative energy. We're also investing in health and wellness, uh, companies whose products and services are about better nutrition or food scarcity or access to health care or ed tech companies whose products are about closing achievement gaps and skills gaps. Um, before... I let you go. We're here in Philly, Democratic Convention. Talk to me about this political moment. Well, first of all, you know, we were all together um, eight years ago in Denver. And, uh, and I remember the magic of that time, the hopefulness of that time, the fact that we were organizing around a transformational, uh, transformational leader um, and, uh, and how um, emotional that was um, for me as a, as a black man, as, a, as an American citizen. 
uh, and I was um, I was so proud to be present last night when the president rounded that circle and demonstrated that he was every bit as hopeful and optimistic today as he was, if not more so, and talked about the accomplishments that he and his team have been able to deliver against extraordinary uh, economic and, 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 and political odds. And the handoff um, to another leader who has all those capabilities, I think, as the president himself talked about, and I have uh, often, um, and really with, I think, the encouragement to take that baton and run as hard and as fast uh, as he has um, was important. And we, of course, are faced with uh, a very sharp contrast um, to, the, uh, to the nominee on the other side. But um, it seems to me that for Hillary Clinton to be a successful candidate and a successful president, she needs to um, separate the, you know, the divisiveness of the rhetoric on the other side and the maybe, I may say respectfully, the lack of uh, realism, if that's what it is, of the, some of the rhetoric and the Sanders supporters and pay attention to what the Sanders supporters and the Trump supporters are saying about their anxiety about their present and their future and their confidence in politics in America today. Because you know what? Hillary Clinton's not running to be president of the Democrats. He's running to be president of the United States. And there's an opportunity, I think, in, uh, in bridging those uh, uh, divides that um, um, just as it has happened in, uh, in the president's at various times in the president's tenure, can make us better. Deval Patrick, thank you for your friendship. Thank you for being thank on the board yours. of the Institute of Politics. It's an honor, of David. Chicago. Thank you. And thanks for your service. Great to be with you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.